0: Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AIAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's Monday the 26th of October today. The US election, and perhaps the fate of the free world, is eight days away, Um, but we're going to try to keep our wits about us and have a relatively normal conversation, and one that ignores... The orange man in the room who's shouting and we're going to start instead with some interesting moves in the defence space, turn then to controversy in a senate hearing regarding the Chinese Australian community and finished with a final item that continues our ongoing conversation about the future of diplomacy. But first it's been an eventful few weeks on the defence front The biggest news i think is the announcement that the australian navy is going to participate in the malabar exercises which previously were a trilateral affair between the us japan and india now this of course unites the four quad countries since the group reconvened in 2017 and this year will be the first time that australia has participated in malabar since 2007. However, note that this is not a formal decision to move into a quadrilateral format for the exercises. It's just a one off, at least in principle, for this year. But of course, it may set a precedent for the future. Now, the Malabar announcement came as Australia's Defence Minister, Senator Linda Reynolds, was in Tokyo for meetings with her Japanese counterpart, Kishi Nobuo. And what jumped out at me in their joint statement was the language on maritime issues where the two sides quote reinforced their strong opposition to any destabilizing or coercive unilateral actions that could alter the status quo and increase tensions in the east china sea end quote and quote reaffirmed their serious concern about recent incidents including the continued militarization of disputed features dangerous or coercive use of coast guard vessels and maritime militia and efforts to disrupt other countries resource exploitation activities end quote so i'm going to group the malabar and this joint statement together And i have a bit of an inside the camera bubble question to start with alan this 19th of october joint statement between defense minister reynolds and defense minister kishi i'm curious how much input would the foreign affairs side have in making a statement like this normally? You know, is the Foreign Minister's Office, DFAT, or our embassy in Tokyo, how much are they normally involved with a statement like that? Is it the kind of thing that's done collaboratively, or does it mostly just come from defence, maybe
1: with input from the Prime Minister? Well, this is where embassies come in, Darren, because they're the on-the-ground coordinators of international policies. So, The ambassador would almost always be in the room, I'm not sure whether he was in this case, but I imagine so, for the ministerial discussions. So whatever portfolio the minister is from, the ambassador is almost always there. The defence attaché from the post involved, in this case Tokyo, who works formally to the ambassador under the Prime Minister's directive for the operations of overseas posts, would also be involved in the negotiations with the Japanese side. So... In a case like this, I'm sure everyone would have been consulted and the text would probably have been sent back to Canberra for sign-offs from Defence, DFAT and pm and as well. Okay, great.
0: Well, turning to the bigger picture then, when I sort of combine this Malabar news with a joint statement and, in fact, the very fact that the Defence Minister travelled to Japan, and we'll talk about that more in a moment, when I think about all these in the broader context, they continue a trend that looks to me like the gradual forming of what, as an IR theorist, I would be calling a balancing coalition. You have a major power, China here, that is growing even more powerful and, for many, more threatening. And so you have a a subgroup of states, and this is the quad countries, that are beginning to join forces to combine their capabilities. Now, I suppose if this was the 19th century or the early 20th century, you'd have diplomats crisscrossing Europe and signing alliance pacts. But, of course, we live in a different age. And thankfully, we're not, it would seem, on the brink of war. But two questions arising from this, Alan. One, when you look at all this, do you also see the gradual formation of a balancing coalition? And two, regardless of what we call it, is it more important for the signal it sends to the region, both to Beijing and to other capitals, or for the momentum it continues to build in terms of functional defence cooperation that could, I suppose, down the track, actually mean something if more serious conflict becomes a real possibility. Well,
1: diplomats would call it a balancing coalition too, and that's clearly what's shaping up here in whatever form and with whatever degree of formality it turns out to have. At present, I think its most important dimension is the signalling objective you talked about. You can see that China has read those signals, and you can see that in its angry diplomatic responses. On the question of functional defence cooperation, well, that's been intrinsic to the alliance between the US and Japan and US and Australia for more than half a century, and the Third of the two other points of that triangle, Australia and Japan directly have over recent decades grown increasingly closer in a defence sense. India is the new and more uncertain element here. New Delhi has been more determined to preserve its own defence autonomy. It's got its own long-standing defence relationships with Russia that operate you know, quite separately, mm, mm. and and of course non-alignment runs deep in the in the national psyche, but the fact that it has issued this invitation to Australia shows that it's willing to take further steps in the direction of formal cooperation, but we're a long, long way from an alliance at the mm, moment. Mm. How do you see it?
0: Yeah, the first thing I'd say is that from the perspective of most international relations theories... You know, almost always a stable balance of power is a good thing because it's less likely to lead to war. US hegemony was unbalanced, but it was stable. Most countries in the region felt relatively secure, and China's rise has disrupted that equilibrium, and the most dangerous time period is the getting from a disruption to a new equilibrium where all the major players feel secure once again. No one feels secure right now, and that is the source of the danger. So are these moves ones that put us on the path back to mutual security? I mean, I think on balance, yes, they contribute incrementally to this trend that over years or decades has the potential to culminate in something more significant if necessary. But nothing in the short term is is hugely provocative or escalatory. You know, nothing here is going to make Beijing feel dramatically more insecure overnight but rather you know Australia and its partners are creating options for more robust responses into the future and in that sense I think are contributing to regional security and remember I think it's important to note that it's not just the the audience in Beijing there's also the other capitals who are looking trying to make decisions about how to navigate between two sides and I think part of China's power comes from the argument that it is inevitable and that individual states much smaller states have no chance to resist you know beijing's demand and respect its core interests and so i think if there is a credible alternative center of power that forms that can credibly promise down the track to help defend their interests and promote an order that, that they support and that can help potentially bring them into the fold as well anyway moving on On her return, the Defence Minister's return to Australia, she made another significant announcement on the 23rd of October that Australia would reduce its naval presence in the Middle East. We will no longer send a naval ship to the region each year. The last ship that was deployed came back in June and the Minister also announced that Australia will withdraw from the US-led coalition patrolling the Strait of Hormuz That we've discussed previously and we'll do that at the end of the year now as friend of the podcast Stephen jedjets wrote with andrew green for the abc quote around 30 years of australian maritime operations in the middle east largely focused on counter-terrorism and counter-piracy operations will soon come to an end alan this type of move was of course foreshadowed in the defense strategic update but still it's the end of an era i suppose
1: Look, very much so. I think this was really interesting. The the Middle East has been so central to Australian defence policy for so long now. When you think back through our history, the protection of our lines of communication through the Indian Ocean to the Suez Canal and back to Great Britain was an important reason that Australian troops found themselves in Gallipoli in the First World War and yeah. in North Africa during the second. And more recently, our commitment to the multinational naval task force was the principal feature of our commitment to the first Gulf War when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And we've been in the Gulf as part of the International Maritime Security Construct, engaged in efforts to control terrorism and drug smuggling ever since. So this does feel to me like the end of an era that began in 1991 with all those hopes for a new international order at the end of the Cold War as the UN mobilised to respond to the threat to Mm. peace. And it's a reminder that something new is afoot. It's not the end of the Australian presence in the Middle East, of course. We'll be there in staff positions and through our people at the Al Minhad Air Base. And you noted a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about the relief mm-hmm. to flight stuff to the explosion in Lebanon, that that's where they came yes. from. But gee, we're a long way from the position where Robert Hill, the former Howard government defence minister, could claim that Australia had a vital interest Mm. in the peace and security of the Middle East. The spotlight is now intensively on our own region once again.
0: Mm. Mm. A final question on this topic, Alan. In our last episode, we graded the performance of the government in handling bilateral relations with China in recent years. In the similar spirit of offering an evaluation, do you think our own government is making roughly the right decisions in the
1: security defence space, both in substance and in form? Well, as you know, my criticism of, because uh, we've talked about it often enough, my criticism of the government has been more about the loose language and clumsy diplomacy around some of its decisions rather than the most part than the decisions themselves. But here, I think they've got both the policy and the public language pretty right Mm, yeah i agree
0: i agree well moving on to our second item and look there's always many stories in the media on china and the last few weeks is no different some of the interesting things i've read about were a bizarre dust-up in fiji where uh, prc diplomats allegedly physically assaulted a taiwanese official there was also reports of warnings issued by the chinese government that it would detain americans in china if the u.s government proceeded with prosecutions of Chinese scholars who are affiliated with the Chinese military. And third, there have been a lot of interesting articles lately about semiconductors, in particular in supply chains, but also fears in Taiwan about the growing threat posed by the mainland. But I mention all those just to give you a sense of what's in the news, but we're not planning on talking about any of it because we want to keep our focus here in Australia this week. On the 14th of October, The Senate Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade References Committee invited three Australians of Chinese heritage to give evidence at a hearing. And the topic was issues facing diaspora communities in Australia. But this is still the Foreign Affairs and Defence and Trade Committee. And one of the three that were invited is my friend and, and ANU colleague, Yun Jiang. Now, one of the senators on the committee is Eric Abetz from Tasmania, and after the three witnesses had given their opening statements, Senator Abetz, for his second question, said, quote, "...can I ask each of the three witnesses to very briefly tell me whether they are willing to unconditionally condemn the Chinese Communist Party dictatorship? It's not a difficult question." In an exchange with one of the witnesses, Wei Chow, Mr Abetz asked why it was so difficult to, quote, pick a side to condemn the oppressive ugliness of the communist regime in China, end quote. And I guess we thought this exchange was worth discussing on the podcast today.
1: We did, Darren. And to get us started, you wrote a very nice piece for the Lowy interpreter with Natasha Kassam on those events. So why don't you lay out your argument here? Thanks Alan. Before I do, I want to start off by
0: saying that two of the witnesses, Osman Chu and my friend Yun Jiang, wrote excellent pieces that we'll link to explaining why Senator Abetz's line of inquiry was so problematic. And I want to quote them both quickly. Osman Chu wrote It felt like a gotcha loyalty test, an attempt to goad me, reducing me to a foreigner who needed to show which side I was on. And later I have no doubt that people will ask me why I refused. I did it because it was demeaning and I would not legitimise his tactic with an answer. Now, Yun Zhang wrote about the Chinese-Australian community, quote, Some are already reluctant to speak out publicly, having already been accused of questionable loyalties, suspected of being an agent of foreign influence, and dismissed as brainwashed." It seems we must pass a test of loyalty before our views can be heard or taken seriously, and that test is often whether we are sufficiently critical of Beijing. Other Australians are not asked questions of this kind. They have the luxury of not having to justify their participation in political life by condemning foreign governments." And the third witness, Lisa Chow, who incidentally is a Labor Party local government candidate, also released a statement on the matter in which she describes what she saw as having quote, her loyalty, allegiance and commitment to Australia repeatedly challenged and questioned. So I think, Alan, it's important for our listeners if they want to learn more to read these powerful arguments because I've only touched upon a few points. And it's right that we hear from them first, but we can't hear only from them and Natasha and I saw room to make our own substantive contribution. If our listeners remember back to our double episode with the former ASIO Director General, Duncan Lewis, we talked then about the importance of ASIO's work for engaging with specific communities in Australia. For example, the Muslim community to counter the threat of Islamic extremism, and the Chinese community in relation to foreign interference. Now, in researching that interview, I had also listened to Lewis's speech at the Lowy Institute last year, which he gave before he'd retired, and also other interventions he'd previously made during his time as Director-General, especially when rhetoric around Muslims from certain politicians was getting quite heated and undermining ASIO's work as a result. So it struck Natasha and me that there was a straightforward argument to be made that Senator Abetz's intervention could very well have harmed Australia's national security, that it might make us less safe. And this would happen if these kinds of loyalty tests intimidated the Chinese-Australian community and made them less likely to engage not only with public debates, but also to cooperate with law enforcement agencies like ASIO. Lewis himself warned in the Loewy speech that, quote, you can very quickly get to a point where you begin to vilify the many for the actions of a few. So I think many, if not most, Australians, upon hearing the Senators' questions, would immediately have seen why they were problematic from the point of view of us maintaining an inclusive and vibrant multicultural society, especially given the nation's troubled history with race. But there are those Australians who don't see this as much of a problem, and who might worry more about the threat posed by China and the Chinese Communist Party. So our point was to try to engage with them on those terms and make a straight up and down national security argument in the hope that that would resonate, even if the
1: other arguments did not. So Alan, what did you make of all this? I agreed absolutely with what you and Natasha wrote, and I was really moved by the testimony from Osman Chu and Yun Zhang I was personally affronted that a question like this with such direct echoes of McCarthyism could be asked by an Australian senator and not immediately repudiated in the room by those from the other side of politics. I thought it was an ugly moment for the country. You're right about the national security implications, and Duncan Lewis isn't the only former head of ASIO to have made the point. I engaged Dennis Richardson in a conversation last week for the ACT branch of the AIA, which I think will soon be on the YouTube channel, and he recounted exactly the same responses to efforts to subject Australian citizens to loyalty tests like this after 9-11. For me, the Abbott's questioning also brings up the broader discomfort, I feel, with the apparently growing sense in some quarters of the political and media communities that there's a catechism for Australian security and foreign policy to which all citizens should subscribe. And that's why I'm also uneasy about the Foreign Relations Bill, which incorporates the need for state or university agreements with overseas government entities to be tested for conformity by something called the national interest by the foreign minister of the day. Whereas for me, a debate about the national interest is something intrinsic to our whole identity as a democracy. You know, this is not formed at something that we form ourselves as we Mm. debate and argue Mm. through the political system. As I've said before, any Australian has the right within the law to support or to oppose particular policies or actions, whether they're those of the Chinese Communist Party or Donald Trump or Jabba Mm. the Hutt. And the Australian national interest, indeed Australian values as well as that, are not engraved for eternity On tablets of stone. If they were, we'd still have a discriminatory immigration system and pay women less than men for the same work. Mm. Well said, Alan.
0: These events for me also raise a broader and I think a very difficult question that we're going to face again and again in the future. Part of my motivation in writing this piece was I felt like this was one instance, and to use the cricket metaphor, that I could not let pass through to the wicketkeeper. In other words, I felt some sense of responsibility to speak up publicly about it, and Natasha and I had something to say that we thought was a useful contribution. And, frankly, Senator Abetz made it pretty easy. Now, there are many ways that all of us who participate in public discourses about Australia in the world and policy can make contributions and of course it depends on what platforms are available to you. I co-wrote this opinion piece, you and I are talking on today's podcast because we have the privilege I suppose to have these platforms available to us. Now others may have other bigger platforms they might be able to talk about it on TV whereas others you know, may their options may be letters to the editor, they may be posting on social media, talking about it with their friends and family, and of course, yes, you know, the simple act of voting and engaging in forms of political participation, you know, like writing to your Member of Parliament. All of these are important contributions, and everyone has to decide for themselves what they feel comfortable doing and, and how they do it. But I think one of the toxic features of the China debate is that Inferences are being drawn about individuals based upon what a person will and will not say on a given issue. You know, Senator Abetz's loyalty test is just the crudest example, but I regularly see outrage on Twitter that person X has not, for example, consistently and repeatedly denounced the horrors of Xinjiang, or maybe they did but used loose or vague language. And I'm sure there's also been displeasure that. For example, Person Y did not speak up to criticise Senator Abetz here. So we're obviously not going to tell people what to do, Alan, so can I ask a question this way? How do you personally think about the conditions under which you need to be proactive in publicly speaking up on a matter of Australia's national interest?
1: Well, every every week, Darren, you introduce this podcast by saying it's supported by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, whose whole mission is to help Australians know more, understand more and engage more in international affairs. It owes its origins to the group of allied peacemakers in Paris after the First World War who looked about them at the carnage of the conflict and agreed that the active engagement of an informed public in the debate about foreign and defence policy was essential if tragedies Mm. like that were to be avoided in future. Mm. And I believe that's as true now as it was then, but the informed public part of it is as important as the act of engagement. So, you know, a Twitter storm of people who believe that COVID-19 vaccines are a way for Bill Gates or George Soros to enslave free citizens into a sort of a global conspiracy is not going to be much help. But, you know, by definition, everyone listening to this podcast, congratulations, forms into the informed (laughs) category. So I believe Australia itself will be more secure and prosperous if as many of us as possible understand the linkages between what we hold to be important at home and what we have to do internationally to protect and expand those interests and then to argue the case in whatever forums are available to us. And if you want to know where to start, we'll put the contact details for AWA branches in our state capitals on the show page. Now, you probably didn't intend that question to be an advertisement, Darren.
0: <laughs> well, I'm always happy to promote the AWA's good work, Alan, but I'm still myself looking for more guidance on situations where there is a contentious or possibly very heated public debate. You know, you talked about the AAAS mission to help Australians know and understand more, and I think that's more straightforward than the mission to engage, because, of course, engagement can be seen through a political lens more easily. So let me sort of press you on this or follow up with a question and ask it this way. In your career, inside or outside of government, have you ever considered the domestic politics of an issue before making a personal public intervention or even just
1: how your intervention would be received? (laughs) Okay, several, several times I guess. The most dramatic to be frank was, and this is not something I'm saying because I think that it should be repeated by young people now, but very early in my career in DFAT I signed a letter to the Canberra Times with a couple of other colleagues, complaining about a speech which the then former opposition leader, Gough Whitlam had taken over, but Arthur Corwell, the former opposition, had got up in Parliament and made a speech denouncing those who who were trying to liberalise Australia's immigration policy and create what he called a chocolate-coloured Australia. Asians, he said, bred like flies and lived off the smell of an oily rag. This was so offensive to me that with little regard for my own future, I willingly signed a letter. Now, in the letter, we didn't say that we were government officials from DFAT, but even in those pre-social media days, information gets around the place quickly. And the following day, the Sydney Morning Herald had a front page article headed, Envoy's Attack Corwell. Now, envoys, we were not. I was an ASO6 equivalent or something at the time, and I got called in before the then Secretary of the Department to be told that he'd closely examined the Crimes Act and was very disappointed to (laughs) he couldn't throw me immediately into prison, but he would be watching my every move. As time went by, I realised years later that what my superiors at the time were doing was going through the motions, and they probably secretly agreed with everything we said, but thought that it was a very stupid way of doing it because Corwell had got up in Parliament and said that the public service had never acted like this in his day. And The deep state, Alan. <laughs> the deep, the
0: deep yeah. state, yeah. yeah
1: the, we were really, really far down. <laughs> so now, you know, for public servants, there is a There are rules, there's a code of conduct, and public servants are rightly to follow that. But I do think that there are times like that when, in whatever proper channels you can use, saying something is necessary for your own mental health, you know, as well as the good of the nation. Wow, that's
0: a great story, Alan. And gosh, it still surprises me that that kind of language existed in the public discourse. But hopefully, he's hoping that in in several decades' time, people will look back to today and also be similarly shocked. And I'm telling a similar story like this. Do you have have a copy of the article, I assume, framed somewhere?
1: (laughs) I found it recently when cleaning out the garage, so that's why it was on my mind. Okay, well, thanks for that. Let's move
0: on to our final brief item. Uh, sort of latest now continuing discussion on foreign policy in a post-COVID world. And my thought here was sparked by a nice little piece written by Aspies Graham Dobell for their strategist blog. And the title was, What's Worth 14 Days Quarantine for Australia's Foreign Minister? And Dobell makes the astute observation that any overseas trip now by a minister comes at this extra high price, spending 14 days in quarantine upon your return. And to quote the piece, the travel test now comes with an even heftier time impost, underlining the injunction to weigh what ministers say, watch what they do. In this year of gloom, doom and zoom, doing it face to face means the meeting is the message. Now, our foreign minister has made two trips this year. To Washington for Osmin that we've discussed, and then to Tokyo for the Quad foreign ministers meeting that we've also discussed on our last episode, and it made me think back to our interview with the DFA Secretary Frances Adamson, and and she talked about I remember her saying that the touch and the feel and the context of being there in person, and that there had to be a place for personal experience in Australia's diplomacy. And so I think two things are striking me about this right now. One, based on my own personal experience as someone who's been living outside of Australia, you know, digital connections are great, but they work much much better if you've got the ballast of a pre-existing personal relationship, a personal connection. And two, the issues that are raised by Debell's piece are not just ones relating to bilateral meetings, but also more so to summits. You know, you could think of summits as super spreader events, I suppose. And These have typically been very important for Australia's diplomacy. But now it's not just us going. We have to rely on other people showing up as well. So I don't really have a specific question here, Alan, beyond my musings. But given this is a theme of our discussions, I'm
1: inviting you to muse a little bit too if you have something to say. Ah, you know me, Darren. Always up for a bit of musing. Look, just before we recorded this, I was actually participating in a virtual conference run by an Australian think tank, with some asian participants at the other end and the technology worked really effectively and an app which was new to me called interprefy i don't know if you've come across that no no uh, it provided simultaneous translations into english through my phone so it all worked you wow. know very nicely but the people we were talking to were a mass of you know blurry pixels on a screen there was zero chance to follow up issues over coffee or if your brain was sparked by a new idea that wasn't on the agenda you couldn't do anything with the the ideas and you know as you and everyone who's experienced the last nine months knows on-screen chat functions just are to substitute for this. So, look, I agree with you. We, and uh, particularly political leaders, are less willing to take risks. That's sensible. Quarantining has the effect of keeping us talking more often to people like us with whom we don't have problems than people Mm. we disagree with. We're not holding those big multilateral gatherings that used to facilitate random contacts, the sort of pull-asides in corridors that you and I used to make fun of in earlier episodes, but were important because they established that personal connection that you were talking about. You knew who the person was. And, you know, as the Brexit negotiations showed us conclusively last week, in the end you need real people in a real room Mm. to do the business. Yeah, I think back to some of the
0: early episodes, and I remember I was obsessed with this idea that foreign ministers could just WhatsApp message each other. Mm. And um, I was worried at the time that this would totally upend the role of diplomacy because why would you need these missions if you just could just send a text message? But of course, you're not going to just send a text message to someone you've never met before. You have no way of trusting them or have any sense of how they're going to receive it and so i can imagine in those circumstances the whatsapp message is going to be as formal as any diplomatic communication yeah yeah. (laughs) you know and it's not going to be you know g'day mate how's it going and how about you know that local sports team or whatever so when you've got those relationships yes you can still have that new digital diplomacy is going to be effective but you know ministers move on they get reshuffled governments lose office or etc and so yeah, I, I sort of have coming back around to, to realising that the, in many ways, the old-fashioned ways are not going to go away if we're going to be effective anyway. All right, well, our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what do you have for us this week?
1: Several months ago, I recommended Ivan Krustev and Stephen Holmes' thought-provoking analysis of what went wrong with post-Cold War liberalism called The Light That Failed. And now I want to recommend a companion piece in a way, because it's a book that shows, in effect, the human side of that failure. And it's Anne Applebaum's Twilight of Democracy, The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends. Applebaum is a well-known historian and journalist who's written about Marxism, Leninism, and about the growth of civil society in Eastern Europe. She's a, I suppose you define her as a classic conservative, but or end with uh, deep commitments to liberal values she's a critic of the authoritarian left but the world she knows and writes about here is that of the center-right transatlantic liberal and cosmopolitan establishment As an American living partly in Poland, where her husband was Deputy Foreign Minister in a centre-right government, she wrote for journals like The Spectator and The Atlantic and The Washington Post. She hung around with people like Boris Johnson. And the book describes the deep breach of relationships which accompanied the 21st century split between liberalism and populism as lifelong friends started excusing and facilitating the populists like Orban and Trump, who took over the high ramparts of the right. So, it's look, it's personal and sad, and its outlook is pessimistic. Given the right conditions, she writes, any society can turn against democracy. Indeed, if history is anything to go by, all our societies eventually will. So it's a warning note. That is indeed grim, Alan. I guess
0: my recommendation is somewhat related and maybe offers somewhat of a path out. I recently read two essays that I think are really important. I'd go as far as saying essential and have clarified one point to me. The first is by the academic Francis Fukuyama, famous for the End of History article he wrote in the late 80s. And he's part of a new digital media project that's sort of launching a website. And so I'll, I'll post the well, the article, which is on that website in the show notes. But it's the essay he wrote is about liberalism and its discontents. The second related piece is by David Brooks, the New York Times columnist who also writes for The Atlantic. And this one is in The Atlantic and it's also a story about liberalism and its failures, at least in the United States, but he uses the frame of social trust. Now, I think the two speak to each other and to us quite well. You know, we're all familiar now with the rise and decline of neoliberalism, I think, especially if you've been listening to this podcast, as an economic model and as a model for society and the overreach of the 70s and 80s, the Reagan, Thatcherism revolutions, which sort of paved the way for the Washington Consensus, the global financial crisis, and that created the economic conditions for a populist revolt. But I think what these essays make clear is that there was also a second overreach of liberalism in terms of its elevation of a, a kind of radical individualism and a refusal to say how one should form one's own identity or lead a good life. Both the far right and the far left are seeking to fill this vacuum. And while I think we have a good idea of how to address liberalism's economic crisis, I don't think we're very far at all along the way in how to solve the identity crisis that liberalism, has, you know, is sort of has led to. So they're not about foreign policy, but as you know me very well, you know, I still think very relevant to to foreign policy in Australia and the world. So I'll link to both in the show notes.
1: Yeah, the Brooks article in particular, I thought, was uh, very sobering and worrying. Yeah, both well worth reading.
0: Yeah, and to continue the thought, such a, a fundamental tenet of liberalism is that you don't want to impose your views on others. You want people to live their life as they see fit. And anything else at some point ends in authoritarianism or some kind of absolutist model. And the problem with that is that if you don't give anyone any guidance, then there's an emptiness there that gets filled by something. There are those who still will want to offer a vision. And it's often very much a vision that is much more anti-liberal than anything that a liberal would propose. So we're a long way from solving that problem, I think. But I think it's good that we're starting to recognise it. Okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AAA intern Mitchell McIntosh, as always, for research and audio editing today, and Rory Setting for composing our theme music. That's all, and talk to you again soon.